You've reached the Onkin Radio Podcast. Nick Onkin here, exploring the world from creativity, consciousness, and everything in between to help you alchemize your life to its fullest expression. Hello, hello. Welcome to another episode of the Onkin Radio Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Onkin, and I'm very excited to drop this podcast. We did this interview a while back us a new friend of mine. His name is Brian Murrescue, and I hope I pronounced that right. He is the author of the book, The Immortality Key. And this is a topic that I've been more and more fascinated with recently because I grew up in a very conservative Christian home. And as I've, over the last few years, I've been diving down the, the rabbit hole of plant medicines. And this book unveils the the, the phenomenon or the storyline or the research and he went to the Vatican and spent some time there with the elders in the library uncovering how all of the basically Christ and all the people around they were the mystics they were doing they were drinking psychedelic wines and beers and the women were the the ones mixing the potions and they were doing this all at underground parties and underground gatherings and they were tapping into the divine and discovering these transcendent portals into the universe and uh, how the the church came along and basically told a different story and hid the women and the drugs essentially <laughs> and and the drugs were the the you know not to say they're drugs now we call them medicines because there's a distinct difference between drugs and medicines now uh, that I learned that really the book that really helped me out with that perspective was How to Change Your Mind by Michael Pollan. If you want a more modern, up-to-date thought process on that, highly recommend that book, as well as obviously the immortality key here. But medicines and the the people in the Bible times were they were drinking these medicines and tapping into the divine, but not able to really talk about it. I think I think Christ was talking about that stuff, but it got twisted and turned into a whole power and control narrative and business, really, essentially. The, the church is a business. And it's really interesting to kind of dive into that topic. And And he's done tons and tons of research and put it all into this book. So I'm very excited to share this conversation with you that I had with Brian this last year and uh, uncover more of this topic. And I'm curious to, to learn and understand more. So with that... I give to you, Mr. Brian Murrescue. All right, what is up, everyone? We got Brian from the author of The Immortality Key here, and I am super excited to chat with you today. Welcome to the show, Brian. Nick, good to see you, man. I wish I had a hat that could even try to compete with that. We got we got to set you up. Maybe a maybe a mushroom hat. <laughs> I think I'm due for one, man. I, I just put mushrooms on a hat recently. Really? So, yeah. Wait, actually, it is right here. Oh, gnarly! We got our little friend, the Amanita muscaria. I'll take it. <laughs> and you know all about that. That's right. That's as close as I get to the Amanita. Yeah. Well, I'm excited to talk to you today because um just finished the book yesterday, which was, it was so good. And as I've gone on my own personal journey through growing up in, a, in the Christian church and being indoctrinated and programmed myself, <laughs> and then detaching from that narrative, and then finding 
you know, my own Eucharist per, uh, so to speak over the last few years and diving into that. So, you know, just want to start, let's just kind of start. I want to hear a, like, how did you find interest in even diving into the subject of religion and psychedelics? Or I don't know how you even want to like poise that, but we can, you know, frame that in, in a way that uh, works. Okay. So the, the big level is that, I mean, the idea has been out there for a very long time. And, you know, my book is kind of just the, the latest iteration on scholarship that goes back at least to the 19, let's see, the 1950s, maybe mm-hmm. even before that. So there were folks like Gordon Wasson, who's largely credited with the rediscovery of psilocybin-containing mushrooms in the 1950s. And then you had, you know, religious historians like Houston Smith, perhaps one of the most influential religious historians of the 20th century, who were writing about the connection between psychedelics and religion. Houston himself had experimented with mescaline and also psilocybin later, and once described it like plugging a toaster into a power line. Uh, so you know that it was the this stuff was talked about and by by many many others. In the 1978, there was this very controversial book, The Road to Eleusis, that talked about the possibility of the ancient Greeks using drugs mm. to find God, and it raises the suspicion that just maybe the earliest Christians were too, which we can get into because of the the correspondences between the ancient Greeks and the earliest Christians. And and that book is kind of roundly rejected at the height of the war on drugs in the 1970s. Mm-hmm. So I pick it up in like 2007, 2008, and just obsess over this stuff for 12 years to try and sift fact from fiction. Wow. Yeah, because you grew up Catholic, right? 13 years of Catholic school, including four years with the Jesuits learning Latin and Greek. Oh, wow. So you were, you were deep indoctrinated. <laughs> <laughs> I went deep, man. Listen, they, they were always very nice to me. It's, it's. I had, I had this really benign experience with with Christianity, which, which I know, I know sounds sounds wild, but it was, um, you know, it was like in my neighborhood, it was like a cultural phenomenon. And I mean, yes, I learned the doctrine, I learned the dogma, but you know, it was, it was nuns mainly who who were teaching me kind of the the good book when I was a little boy. And then by the time I got to the Jesuits, I was, you know, 14, just this very kind of like intellectual, very linguistic based search for answers, you know, and I'm, maybe I'm naive, but like, it never seemed like there was an agenda there. And, and, and I know there, there, there can be in other denominations, yeah. but I, I feel like I kind of, I kind of lucked out, man. I was introduced to this, this very kind of mystical notion of Christianity. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I mean, for me, it was a very, it was very cultured as well. It was, it was fine. It was, you know, there wasn't anything necessarily negative, but, you know, stepping out and going, seeing from where I'm seeing now, it's it's definitely been, I see it completely differently. (laughs) (laughs) So so you picked up the book and you started reading it and then you went off onto this journey. I mean, you went to, you went to Greece, you went to Italy, you went to you hung out in the Vatican. Yep, quite a bit, quite a bit. Yeah, so tell us a little bit about the journey of how you kind of started winding down this road of, of you know, all these adventures going and researching these places. So I came across the, that 1978 book when I was an undergrad mm-hmm. at Brown. I was still studying Latin and Greek. That I mean, the reason I went to college was to continue studying classics. And, you know, I mean, that was, that was an, an important book, I thought, in the late 90s, early 2000s. But they're just there wasn't much discussion happening. I mean, there, there weren't many classicists who were specializing in ancient drugs. I mean, there, there still aren't, right? And the whole concept of like ancient pharmacology just wasn't widely written about 20 or so years ago. And so I kind of put it on the back burner. And then 
in 2007, I'm reading about the psilocybin trials at Hopkins, for example. And you know, I, I start to connect these, these pieces. I mean, people today are talking about very transformative experiences from one and only dose of psilocybin, for example, mm -hmm. under like very controlled conditions. And it reminded me of the little testimony that survives from Eleusis, as in the road to Eleusis, this ancient spiritual capital, which is kind of, I mean, it has, you know, circumstantial things in common, like a once in a lifetime experience, the concept of a magic potion, the concept of a celestial vision that transforms you into an immortal. I mean, there, there's enough there to play with that. I started connecting those, those early dots and then spent like a decade reading as much as I could. And then in, in 2018, I hit the road and I started to talk to all these experts in the U.S., and Europe and traveling to these archaeological sites and the archives and the museums, spelunking under the streets of Rome and just having a, a grand old time. I mean, what an adventure sounds like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So where do you, where do you think it, so I guess let's start off with how would you define the Eucharist? Cause that's a big common theme throughout the book is, that you talk about, you know, and after writing the book, how would you describe that term? I mean, yeah, like in, in, in some ways, this is a grail hunt. I mean, you know, the, the, the immortality key is kind of like a 21st century Indiana Jones crusade. Um, <laughs> you know, the, the, the Eucharist is, is a big deal. The, the Holy Grail is legendarily the cup that was used by, by Christ at the Last Supper, which is this big turning point for the history of Western civilization. Because this, this, this religion that was sparked at that meal becomes the ritual that is reenacted to this day in churches, you know, every Sunday all around the world for two and a half billion Christians. It begins at the Last Supper and it begins by the sacrifice. It begins by the bread and wine that became the Christian communion or the Eucharist, which in Greek means like Thanksgiving meal. And to be honest, we don't know what that was. We don't have any archaeological evidence for this grail. We don't know what happened around that table. In the Gospels, we have things that were recorded, things that were said, but we have no like forensic data over what was in that chalice. And so, if anything, my book asks kind of a very big question, like what kind of wine was in that chalice? We know that Jesus talks about wine. We know that wine is served across the Catholic and Orthodox churches. It's Welch's grape juice in some churches. <laughs> But, you know, we have this idea of Da Vinci's Last Supper, and we just assume that it's normal wine, right? Right. But as you begin to look into it, the wine of the time, the wine of antiquity was very, very complex. It was very sophisticated. And it was not uncommon at all to mix wine with plants and herbs, maybe even fungi, some of them lethal, some of them toxic, some of them visionary, some of them healing. You know, wine is this really versatile vehicle. And so... I went to all these places trying to figure out what ancient wine really was and mm. trying to find the organic data to test it. Yeah. And what did you find in terms of the difference between from Greece to Italy and then the other places that you went? Well, I mean, that's a, it's a great question, the way you phrase it, because, you know, we, I, I investigate in the first half of the book, all these pagan mystery rituals. And, and a mystery ritual is kind of like, this ceremonial death and rebirth experience. So, mm -hmm. you know, Eleusis was one sanctuary where that happened with one kind of magic potion. We think some kind of primitive beer that may or may not have been spiked with different plant allies or fungal allies. <laughs> and then you have the mysteries of Dionysus. Dionysus is the Greek god of wine yep. and madness and ecstasy and intoxication. And they're whole, wholly different initiation rites. And then you get to Christianity and it kind of begins in the same way. It's illegal. People are meeting in private homes or underground in catacombs 
in kind of in small settings amongst trusted people with secret sacraments. Christianity begins with secrets, hmm. kind of the way that these cults do too. And the reason I say all that is because you mentioned like ancient Greece. You know, it was not crazy to say that Italy of the time, the first century AD, the second century AD after Jesus was kind of like Greece. In fact, it was called Magna Graecia, which is Great Greece. And so it's not it's not up for dispute whether there was Greek influence there, whether the mystery cults were there, whether these rites of death and rebirth were there. The question is, if they were there, did they also include drugs? The hmm. same kind of drugs that we speculate were involved in these pagan traditions. Did they make their way to Italy? Did they make their way to Pompeii? and to Rome, and that's where the hunt really kind of gains momentum. All right, my friend, I want to tell you about today's sponsor, and it is one of my favorite brands, Organifi. Uh, as you know, I'm all about putting healthy things into my body and using different supplements and things to get the nutrients that I need uh, when I can't always have access to them through other means of vegetables and things like that. So one of my favorite uh, mixtures is something that I like to mix three of their products together. It's the pure, the red juice and the green juices. And it's a power pack of nutrients in the morning. Um, so I've been doing this every morning. And what's been great is I've been taking it on my travels so that I can keep some daily nutrients with me, especially when it's a very travel schedule. I don't always have access to foods that I want to eat. Um, so it's a great staple, great way to um, bring things on the road. They have little travel packs too, which is perfect. So you can just drop them in, mix them with water, and they're delicious. Less than three grams of sugar, uh, which is very, very little, and it's all organic. Either way, no processed sugars. Uh, so the green juice, which is great, is just you get your daily doses, your daily dose of nutrients that you need. You just mix it with water. There's 11 superfoods like ashwagandha, morninga, chlorella, spirulina, turmeric, and much more. The red juice is a superfood berry blend that contains adaptogens, antioxidants, and a clinical dose of cordyceps mushrooms, which is highly, highly beneficial to you. There's 13 superfoods for energy support like beets, blueberries, acai, pomegranate, Siberian ginseng, reishi mushrooms, rhodiola, and more. So it gives you a bunch of energy without the caffeine. Um, and then Pure. Uh, Pure is about promoting gut health and the morning brain fog is very helpful. It promotes healthy BDNF levels and mental clarity. For those of you that don't know what that is, I didn't. I had to look this up. Uh, Brain-derived neurotropic factor. It's the key molecule involved in plastic changes related to learning and memory. So neuroplasticity, things like that. Uh, what's great, it's infused with lion's mane and coffee berry. Got baobab from an African fruit that contains 10 times the amount of vitamin C that oranges do. It's got apple cider vinegar to improve gut health. Contains all kinds of other goodies like aloe vera, ginger root, monk fruit, digestive enzymes, and more. So you can go check this out, uh, Organifi.com. That's with an I uh, at the end, not a Y. And you can use the code Onken, O-N-K-E-N, for 15% off at checkout. Yeah, it, I mean, I guess religion all kind of, everything kind of has moved around the different civilizations throughout the years. I mean, do you think it started in the Middle East, like with Israel and, and that area, mm -hmm. and then kind of moved up into Europe? Yeah, I mean, so Christianity is certainly born in, in Galilee, right? It's, it's, it's born in, in the Holy Land. But, you know, when you think about the New Testament written in ancient Greek, 
again, right. which is why there's this connection between the world of the ancient Greeks and Romans and the world of the earliest Christians. The, and the uniting factor is, is ancient Greek and Hellenic culture in general, where these wine potions were splashing around. So, so even though Jesus comes from Galilee, like Christianity takes root largely because of St. Paul and his letters. It takes root in Greek-speaking communities like Corinth in Greece, mm-hmm. which is not that far from Eleusis, right. or a place like Ephesus in modern-day Turkey, or a place like Rome. Paul writes letters to, to the Romans, obviously. Mm-hmm. And so this is like where Christianity is, is bubbling up in these Greek-speaking communities around the Mediterranean, which you know, had their penchant for secrets and for ceremony and for ritual. Yeah, I mean, it seems interesting that it was all under underground. It was like this whole secret society of people drinking. It was, it was illegal. It's, I mean, it's, it's illegal. <laughs> you know, we, we forget today. I mean, you know, it, Christianity went on to become the victor, you know, and, and to transform the Roman Empire. But it went from being a persecuted, illegal cult accused of cannibalism for good reason, by the way. Right. I mean, the, 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 the Greek in the gospel is quite cannibalistic about feasting on flesh and blood. It goes from that to the official religion of Rome in like 300 years. And then, you know, after Constantine, it, it just, it goes out and then there's colonization in the age of exploration and then Christianity sweeps the planet. But I mean, for a couple hundred years, it's this really crazy religion. <laughs> so what, at what point do you think it turned from underground society to like full-blown, you know, the biggest marketing campaign of the world, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so we, I mean, as best we can tell the fourth century. So after Constantine in the beginning of the century, you know, he, he brings it out of the shadows. He, he converts to Christianity himself after mm. um, an infamous vision in the sky. And then the decades go on. Other emperors come along with Theodosius and they make Christianity the official religion of Rome. And, and there, there it stays until today, until right now, we're in 2021, Anno Domini, the year of our Lord, Jesus Christ. Be, again, because of that moment, because of that Last Supper, and because of whatever was happening in those first and second centuries after Jesus, there was something clearly very profound, you know, where people were, were flocking to this religion, I think, in search of something. And, and, and I think they were in search of family and community, but I think they were also in search of, of experience, primary religious experience. I think I think that's what called the earliest Christians away from perfectly good religion, perfectly good cults that had been around for centuries and centuries. Here they are, you know, rushing to Jesus, maybe to find just a pinch of what they had, you know, in the ancestral days. Yeah, it's interesting because I mean I don't I don't know if you've looked much into the Egyptian era of of all those, you know, and then how that's like translated, right? Because his Christianity is based off the crux of of Jesus Christ and, you know, accepting him as your personal Lord and savior. And if you do, you go to heaven and, you know, instead of going to hell and it's like this whole, it's this interesting fabricated story. Right. And it's like, what happened in the Egyptian days? What happened before? Where did people go? <laughs> Where did people go after they die in, in the story, in the story piece right. of it, right? Before Jesus right. was existed. I raised that question in the very first chapter of the book. I call it the identity crisis. Yeah. And the identity crisis is is exactly what you just said. I mean, like, we had salvation before Jesus. I mean, the Greeks found salvation at Eleusis or through the mystery rites of Dionysus. They'd never heard of Jesus. Plato and Pindar and Sophocles and the people who built Western civilization from the ground up, 
democracy, the arts and sciences, philosophy, literature, and on and on, they never heard of Jesus. And so like, there's this, there's this narrative that, okay, well, the ancient Greeks were super smart and they obviously built all this stuff because they were geniuses. But when it came to the big questions, when it came to the meaning of life, and where you go when you die, they were dead wrong somehow. They missed that completely. <laughs> and Christianity comes along and saves our soul. And, and that's the dichotomy I set up in the book. You know, are we Greek? Are we rational? Or are we Christian? Are we, you know, non-rational believers in some transcendent reality? I think the Greeks wrestled with this for sure. They mm-hmm. thought about the afterlife. They went to Eleusis to become immortals. They were concerned about dying, just like <laughs> you and me. And I think the earliest Christians were too. And I think at the time, there wasn't a huge you know, gap between science and religion. And I think for them, investigating the afterlife, investigating the soul, maybe through biotechnology, like plants and herbs, and many, many other spiritual exercises, for them was very natural. They wanted to investigate this stuff. They wanted visceral experience. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I can speak from my own experience that these things have definitely... Uh have definitely tapped me into a different space and to the, uh, to the divine. And, and it's such an interesting thing to have experienced psychedelics now. I mean, I've done, was it DMT and psilocybin ayahuasca so far? Wow. And I'm about to go do peyote next week. <laughs> <laughs> next week? Yeah, next week down in Mexico. God's, Godspeed, man. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I'm going to this place called Arcana International. So it'll, you know, it'll be a mixture of different medicines, but I've definitely transported into that space. And I've definitely, you know, we were talking the other day, it's like I've, I've experienced ego death multiple times. And so it has shifted my perspective on death. And so the idea of when you die before you die, then you never die really right. makes sense to me. And, you know, it sounds like that's been your experience when you had an NDE, you said you had an NDE when you were five years old yeah, and kind of experienced yeah. the other side yourself. Yeah. And, and, and that's common throughout recorded history. I mean, it's, 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 you know, the, the immortality key is not necessarily psychedelics. It's that near death experience, right? And this concept of dying before dying, you find it in all the mystical literature. Or I could I would say like most all mystical literature. I mean, in, in Christian mysticism, Meister Eckhart, for example, talks about ego dissolution and the self annihilation. Um, you can find this concept of ayin or nothingness mm. in Kabbalistic Judaism, concept of divine nothingness, and again, self annihilation in order to find the self. Uh, Rumi, the great Sufi poet, talks about finding the self to lose the self. If you could get rid of yourself for an instant. You know, the secret of secrets would open to you. I mean, so this is this this is known and it comes from deep prehistory and traditional societies where all these archaic techniques of ecstasy were engaged to produce something like a near-death experience, whether that was like sleep deprivation, you know, or tattooing, scarification, and really <laughs> gnarly rites like that, which aren't always fun. But that's the point. It's not always fun. And I mean, maybe you can answer better than me. Most, you know plant medicine journeys are not always fun. Yeah. Are they? Not, not all of them. No. <laughs> However, <laughs> I mean, you were, you and I were both talking about Michael Pollan talks about the set setting and, and container and dosage. And I find especially with psilocybin, that is like a really big, that's the biggest yeah. piece is the container because you can have, people have had really bad trips. People have had darker spaces. And I know ayahuasca is way more. That's, that's, it's a grandmother energy and she'll come in and slap you around. However, 
it's a lot of growth and healing that happens from that, right? So the only way to get to, through something is through something. You can't skirt around yeah. it, right? So I think, you know, different medicines take you to different places. Ayahuasca definitely takes you through it and is almost like this kind of really deep therapy in a certain sense. But that's that's the formula, therapeutai. This is, this is the great catharsis yeah. of, of the soul. And when I mentioned like, this mystical version of Christianity. I've been reading a lot of Richard Rohr recently. Mm. He's this Franciscan who writes about these, these processes and other spiritual exercises. And he says, you know, that death and resurrection is essentially the pattern when it comes to enlightenment, you know, both for us and for Jesus who went through the same process, but, you know, not looking to that as an isolated event, but, um, you know, like a pattern or, or a template for, for all of us, for all of creation, actually, mm -hmm. which goes through its own, death and resurrection process, maybe the universe itself. I was actually reading an article yesterday that maybe you were in constant death and rebirth cycles and there are, you know, infinite big bangs happening all the time, which is a wild, a wild idea. So why wouldn't we participate in that ourselves? And why wait until you physically die to experience something like the death of your smaller self, your false self, in order to find mm. what Richard Rohr would call the, the, the true self? There's the, the sinking suspicion that there's something genuine at the end of this tunnel, right? And that with resurrection comes an appreciation for for divinity and what it what it means to be immortal. I don't I don't know. Yeah, I think, you know, I've definitely had you know, that death and rebirth experience in plant medicine ceremonies and things like that and you know, if we're looking looking at it in terms of of the Bible speak and the, and, and all of that, you know, it definitely, you know, when you're reborn, it is a whole new lease on life, right? Like you see, huh. you know, it's kind of like when you had that near death experience and you came back, you're like, Oh, life is different. Hmm. You, know, you see life in such a different way. Hmm. Do you feel reborn after these experiences? Do you feel like you see with new eyes? Definitely. And I mean, like you go to the other side, right? And you, you know, whether it's a simulation, I mean, maybe we're all in just a simulation and a hologram right now. So, <laughs> you know, you're rebooting the hologram. <laughs> <laughs> that's a great title for a book. Yeah, maybe that's, I'm gonna, I'll, I'll keep that in mind. <laughs> that's yours, man. Re rebooting the hologram. And I yeah. mean, I was, I just had an experience with mushrooms on New Year's Day and it was a complete reboot upgrade of the system. So, you know, maybe these rebirths are new perspectives, you know, new perspectives on life and how you see life. I mean, this, this, this was the idea behind the beatific vision, the, the idea that you know, the kingdom of heaven, what does Joseph Campbell say? If you think about what the kingdom of heaven is, it's the beholding of the, the beatific image of God, whatever that means. And that probably doesn't mean anything to lots of people, which is great. I mean, Joseph Campbell says that it's more like an inflection, you know, a condescension on the part of the infinite to our finite minds. And that's what looks like divinity. And so it's not divinity. It's what looks like divinity to us because we don't, we don't have names. We don't have language for this stuff, but it's all very ephemeral and very difficult to language. But when you look in the mystical literature, you again, again and again, you see people experiencing this, this mini death and mm -hmm. coming out the other side, you know, convinced of their true identity. This is why the, the Sufis, for example, are, are called the impatient ones mm. because they don't want to wait until their actual death. They want to die now and they want to experience some taste of the beyond here and now, which Joseph Campbell calls eternity. 
Yeah. Well, it's interesting because we all live in a cons- a narrative construct that we have created for ourselves, right? Which is woven deeply in our, our I don't want to say our DNA maybe, but like, you know, we were all brought, you were brought up Catholic, Christian, I was brought up Christian. And that was so deeply woven in who I was in this construct that like once you start deconstructing those constructs, which with the help of plant medicine can that can take you into those spaces you realize that like okay well, yeah we are but we can just shift it if as we shift narratives we shift identity right we we grab onto different narratives and at the end of the day we are you know of my belief it's it is it's just a hologram it's this hologram that we create in in our lives it just like our lives are are the result of our world around us is a reflection of what we're creating on the inside well, I mean, and that's kind of textbook Platonism in a way. We we forget this, you know, but, you know, Plato yeah. in his allegory of the cave is really talking about a very similar idea, the idea that we're only witnessing shadows. And if we only, you know, turned around, we would see the actual archetypes the way they are. Mm. And, I, and But I mean, I mentioned that for, it's not just, you know, abstract philosophy. So I mentioned Gordon Wasson, who has this psilocybin experience in the mid-1950s. And when he's writing about it later, because I guess he was well read. His first his first thought is Plato. He starts thinking about Plato. And he writes later in this famous article in Life magazine in 1957, you know, it, it occurs to him that just maybe he he spied the Platonian archetypes. And mm-hmm. that and that, you know, this this everyday vision that we have is imperfect and unreliable and false. And that he felt that he'd penetrated into like a truer version of reality, which you'll hear again and again and again from some some of these clinical volunteers and across the psychedelic literature, there's a word for it, the noetic sense Hmm. from the Greek noos, meaning consciousness. I mean, again and again, people talk about encountering a version of reality that is more real than real, more real than than real life, which is Hmm. a really mind-boggling concept. The noetics. The noetics, yeah. Does it have anything to do with poetics? Like, is there any sort of correlation between in those words? Well, they certainly rhyme. Because, <laughs> I mean, it sounds very poetic. Noetic sounds very poetic. Not that that has any correlation, but life can be poetic in a very noetic sense. I, I'm not going to disagree. So, noesis <laughs> is, is the thing that the mind does, and poiesis would be, would be the thing that we do. It's the doing. It's the, I mean, that's what poetry is. It's, it's the doing. It's the praxis. It's the exercise. It's putting consciousness into, into real life. You, you nailed it, Nick. Yeah, I mean, we're we're all just trying to, you know, describe this experience that we're having, right? And I think the That's ego right. is the ego is the uh, the driver's seat of this dimension. It's it hard. It's hard to disagree with that. <laughs> so let's let's talk a little bit about the uh, the women of history, right? Like Mary Magdalene and somebody, even Dionysus and some of these others, you know, you talked about in the book that it, they, they is basically like women and drugs were hidden from everything else. And I would love to learn a little bit more of what you discovered, especially about Mary Magdalene and her interaction with, with Jesus and the role that she played in his life. Yeah. I mean, it's, it sounds like a Dan Brown novel and I know it sounds like conspiracy, but th- I mean, there is some serious scholarship behind Mary Magdalene. And I would start with the gospel itself, to, to be quite honest. You know, we, we often think about the church as a patriarchal institution. That's what it's come to be, obviously, largely just because, you know, the popes and cardinals and bishops kind of stepped into the shoes of the Roman Empire, the all-male emperors of the patriarchal Roman Empire, 
and just kind of move forward. It was emperors, by the way, who either convened or presided over most of the early church councils. And so you know, we're talking about a time when there wasn't a big gap between church and state. Just like I was saying, there wasn't a big gap between science and religion. Mm-hmm. You know, there, we, we don't know where the church ended and the state began and vice versa in the fourth century, fifth yeah. century AD. I mean, so it's, it's not a big surprise that, that men come to rule the day. But when you read the Gospel of John and with Easter coming upon us, you know, Mary Magdalene plays a dramatic role. I mean, a really big role. She is, in John's Gospel, the first and only witness to Christ's resurrection. Hmm. It's only later that Thomas, with his doubts, begins to see. And it's Mary who spreads the word to the men who are incredulous at first. In John's 20th chapter, she's described in beautiful Greek as like turning her head and recognizing Jesus. There's a couple of verses when she's trying to figure out like who this figure is. She can't recognize him. He right. resurrects in form she doesn't recognize, which is a whole, a whole nother beautiful image about what happens to us after resurrection or after a decent plant medicine experience. <laughs> but you, you take on a new body to you assume a body of light and she couldn't recognize him. And, and then finally it dawns on her, she has this awakening moment and the Greek is theore, she sees. We get the word theory. She mm. sees Jesus in, in a whole new light. And I like to say for a brief moment in time, Mary Magdalene was the church. She mm. was the only follower of Jesus. She was tasked in John's gospel with not only having that vision of the risen Christ, but then proclaiming it, carrying it to the world. And that died pretty quickly. But when you, when you look around the time, it wasn't just her who's later described as the apostle to the apostles, which shouldn't be, shouldn't be undermined. There were many, many women mentioned in Paul's letters, like Junia in Rome, the foremost among the apostles, she's called in Greek. And when you look at frescoes from the time, you see women consecrating wine. You know, so whether that was a proper Eucharist or like, you know, a hybrid of something pagan and Christian, women were typically in charge of mixing these potions, Mm. both in early Christianity and all those ancient Greek cults that I was mentioning, and probably deep, deep into prehistory. Now, women are gathering the herbs. Women are mixing these potions. And these are the same women like Circe in, in Homer's literature who becomes our witches mm. much later on. It's, it's, always, it's always women who possess this really deep like drug expertise. Interesting. Very interesting. And, you know, you talked about the like the witchcraft. Do you think it was mostly just the potion stuff or were they, do you think that they were practicing other other things? I mean, the witches and wizards were into all kinds of funky things, like with, you know, some of it involved the written word, you know, and different, different games you can play with that, the amulets, rocks, stones, and minerals, astrology, you know, all, all kinds of interactions with the heavens. But then, I mean, you can't discount the role of plants and herbs and fungi. You know, when, when, when you think of the prototypical witch, I mean, Circe, for example, this is like 8th, 7th century B.C., She's often associated by Homer himself with a deep knowledge of, of the natural kingdom. Hmm. You know, she's mixing up pharmakalugra, it says in Greek, in Homer, you know, she's in charge of dangerous drugs. And she's mixing all these drugs into wine <laughs> and turning Odysseus's men into pigs. And, you know, she, she's, she has high magic. And part of it has to do with her knowledge of drugs. And it's the same knowledge you see carried on for centuries and centuries. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm... I'm very much into the wizardry <laughs> of the modern day, so to speak. And it's interesting because, you know, I think that was even 
a piece of what, you know, Jesus was tapped into too, right? Like I think any of these, I don't know if you've ever studied like Joe Dispenza, his work yeah. and and whatnot, but people that can, you know, we all have access to the field. We all have access to the quantum field to, you know, whatever, you know, things that you went through meditation, through plant medicine. It's, it is all the wizardry stuff, I think, that is that. Well, there's there was actually a scholar, uh, Morton Smith, who was a, a, a deep scholar of religion at Columbia University. He wrote a very incendiary book called Jesus the Magician. Mm. And he looks into the practice of magic and mysticism at the time of Jesus. Ooh. And it's, it's, I mean, it's a really fascinating look into how people of the time interpreted Jesus. And there was a certain, you know, contingent, a certain demographic that very much looked to him as a wizard, as a magician, as a magos. <laughs> and this is even recorded by the church fathers, by the way. They say, you know, they say that Jesus is only a magos. He's only a magician. He's not truly the son of God. He's just out there doing parlor tricks. And you can find, it's really crazy. I actually saw them. Um, you can find all these artifacts from the time that show Jesus holding a magic wand. Oh, Inside the Vatican Museum, I was analyzing these what's called vetri dorati, these these golden glasses. Kind of, it's kind of like the bottom of a beer a beer bottle, and you would find them in in the catacombs and etched into them in gold leaf, squeezed between these glasses. You'd see all these images, and some of them do show Jesus with like a wand raising Lazarus from from the dead with a magic wand. Wow. That's amazing. <laughs> I need to look into this. <laughs> That's your kind of Jesus, man. That's my kind of Jesus. All the all the magic tricks, healing people, all that stuff. <laughs> did you ever did you ever are you look into the Dead Sea Scrolls? I or there was this book, I think it was St. John of the Cross or something. One of the guys that was able to study the Dead Sea Scrolls. I don't know much about the Dead Sea Scrolls in terms of like who has access, but I heard that only a few people have access to them. No, there, there have been some decent literature on that. I mean, so John Allegro, who was a Dead Sea Scroll yes. scholar, he also, I keep mentioning all these incendiary books. He, he publishes another controversial book, uh, The Mushroom and the Cross, yes. about the notion of Jesus as the Amanita Muscaria. And so, but, but I mean, he starts his career as a, a bona fide scholar of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Which, by the way, as a total tangent, just last week, the Israeli Antiquities Authority announced the discovery of new fragments of the Dead Sea Scrolls. It's the first such fragments that they've found in 60 years. Oh, wow. So it just, it just goes to show, I mean, this, this, this stuff is always evolving. We're always finding new things. And um, it's, it's fun to ask questions about the past. We're always learning new details. Yeah. So because his, his theory that was that Jesus was a mushroom, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> versus these other theories that, that Jesus was eating mushrooms. Right. It didn't, it didn't catch on. It didn't catch on. It's, it's, listen, it's a brilliant book. It, it's really dense. And he's, he was a philologist par excellence. And he analyzes Sumerian and, and tries to, to follow its potential influence onto the Semitic languages that underlie the ancient Greek of the New Testament. And so it's just like multiple layers of complexity to arrive at the conclusion that there was no historical Jesus. He was a mushroom and there's all this code <laughs> in the new Testament, which is, which is really fun, but hard to prove. Yeah. But I mean, Hey, if, if the Bible says that you, you can only enter into heaven through, 
<laughs> through me, right? Through Jesus, <laughs> then maybe he was. Maybe exactly. Who knows? That's it. Who knows? I you know, I, I would probably lend towards that Jesus was an actual man eating mushrooms and uh performing magic and and wizardry. And surfing, potentially. And surfing. Did you come across anything? Because there was, I heard there was a big piece. There was like 13 years of his life that were unrecorded. And there was talk that I've heard things that he like traveled to India and like studied with gurus and stuff like that. Did, have you, did you come across anything like that? Yeah, yeah. There's a, yeah, a whole, a whole chunk of his life is missing. From the presentation at the temple as a teenager until his public ministry at the age of 30, there's this giant gap. Yeah. Which is not the least concerning thing about Jesus. I mean, you know, the, the gospel accounts that we have come after, long after his death. I mean, you know, Paul is the first to begin writing about Jesus, like in the 50s, probably. Mm. And then the gospels follow that. John's gospel is written in like close to the end of the first century. I mean, a couple generations after Jesus. And so that's why we can't agree on who this guy is. And that that's why speculation about, you know, his entry into a mystery school in Egypt or maybe, you know, a long trip to the Himalayas <laughs> aren't that crazy. I mean, I, I don't see a lot of substantive evidence for it. But then again, I mean, the absence is not necessarily the proof of anything. I mean, there, we don't know what this figure was up to. We don't, we don't, you know, we're always trying to figure out the historical Jesus. That's why we have 33,000 denominations of Christianity, including the one that you grew up in, the one I grew up in, and another 30,000 because... There's lots of room for for doubt and questions. Yeah. Well, what's wild is is that the idea. I mean, I I even just to remember a lot of your book from listening to over the last week. You know, I I could imagine writing a book trying to remember stuff that happened like 50 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> and then the whole, the whole then all these religions are created out of those books, right? Like, think of how much information gets like. Yeah, completely diverted or mis or skewed or, oh yeah, I, I remember it like this. But that's true. well, we're still writing about the World War Two. We're still finding out <laughs> new things about World War Two, and it was you know it was around the corner compared to Jesus. This is kind of the like the allure and the frustrating part of history, which Terence McKenna actually talks a lot about. You know that 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 we're we're, we're amnesiacs in a in a mm. really big way. Like if you'd met someone who didn't know where they were between 2005 and 2010, you describe them as a fairly damaged person. And yet we don't really know where we were in the Middle Ages or, or deep antiquity. And not a lot of people study Latin and Greek or Hebrew or Aramaic or ancient pharmacology. And you know that's the kind of disciplines that, that I think have a lot of value to offer to what is a really big question. Like, how did we get here? Why, why this religion? Why did why were people attracted to this illegal cult? Who was this Jesus? What was the real message? What did Jesus want? Did he want to start a new religion? Was he trying to preserve older traditions? Was it a mix of both? And these are all fair questions. Yeah. And and then it leads to creating these religions, right? I mean, do you what do you think the purpose of creating these religions were? I mean, you know, I'm not a conspiratist, so I mean, I, I mean, at, at at some at some root, and D brother David Steindl Rosh, the Benedictine monk, talks about this. I mentioned him at the beginning of the book. Mm -hmm. You know, we can't say that religions are born in psychedelics, but we can say that religions are born in mystical experience, maybe visionary experiences, like Moses in the burning bush, Paul, who we've been talking about, is largely responsible 
for the success and spread of Christianity. He never met Jesus. Mm. He's struck blind on the road to Damascus for three days. He can't see. And then he's in supernatural communication with Christ for the rest of his life and writes all these letters. These are crazy things for the modern mind to, to deal with. And so something extraordinary happens to these people. And, and, I, and I think maybe some of the earliest followers were looking for something also extraordinary. And when you're doing that, to keep this stuff alive, I mean, just to keep the secret alive, you have to create organization, obviously. You got to create a church. Otherwise, these secrets will die under their own weight. That's what happened mm. at Eleusis, for example. I mean, the, the, the Christianized Roman Empire was able to get rid of all this stuff, you know, and throw it into the dustbin of history because there weren't many written records. There were no written records on Eleusis. It was forbidden to talk about what happened there. We don't have a lot when it comes to the mysteries of Dionysus either, or these other cults. We have like 1% of the total literary output of antiquity as a base case. You know, so this stuff disappears over time. And I think you preserve it by creating churches. You do what, what human beings do. You know, you you incorporate, you, you follow your articles <laughs> of organization. And you know, eventually the bureaucracy is going to bump up against the mystics. Mm. It's, that, it's that simple. There are, there are, all those, are those who are always going to thirst for primary religious experience. There's always going to be a Nick Onkin out there who wants to, to <laughs> taste the mystery. And there are going to be others, maybe in your own family, maybe amongst your friends, maybe among people you see every day who just who could care less, you know, and, and, and for whom there are other kinds of religion that just speak to other people for where they are in their life you know yeah that makes sense that definitely makes a difference that's a that's a good perspective i like that i like that (laughs) you know i think we all get in our own like little worlds over you know especially this day and age like we're all kind of hung up in our houses and and (laughs) spending less time with each other and you know watching videos on the (laughs) internet (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so we can formulate different different ideas but sometimes it's, it's hard to remember that there's actually a world out there there's a world there's a world out there there is a world you know we've all been trapped for the last year <laughs> i know it's it's too much man it's it's uh, enough's enough <laughs> enough is enough that's for sure so let's let's dive into the uh the holy grail you know you've You've seen, you've been watching, you told me you've been watching the uh, Indiana Jones. <laughs> how, how fair, how, I won't say accurate, but like that story of Indiana Jones, like how accurate do you think it is in terms of the search of the Holy Grail now, especially for you? <laughs> well, I mean, it's, it's very romantic. It's, it's hard not to invest in, in the romanticism. I, th- I think. Listen, part, part of the search for the grail is actually trying to find something physical. And I mean, I really do think like the sciences, like archaeochemistry, have a lot to add to the conversation. I mean, there are you know, people who dedicate their careers, their lives to going out into these excavations and testing these ancient chalices and vessels and containers. And we're finding things that we didn't know about, you know, even five years ago. It was just last year that some of the science turned up ritual use of cannabis, for example, on a, a limestone altar, a shrine mm. in the 8th century BC that we can attribute to some aspect of early Judaism and what looked like a scaled down version of Solomon's temple. This was in a peer reviewed paper from last May. So the authors say that this is some of the first, if not the first, you know, hard evidence for the use of psychoactive drugs in the Holy Land, which is really impressive. Like why now? Why, why now? <laughs> well, I mean, the science is getting better. 
you know, the science that 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 Indy didn't have available to him. But you know, while we're looking at that, there's also Marcus Brody from Indiana Jones who says that the search for the cup of Christ is the search for the divine in all of us. And maybe what's happening in these clinical trials or what you're about to experience or what is in the Native American church, for example, with peyote or different ayahuasca traditions in a religious context like the Santo Daime. I mean, maybe the grail is already there. I mean, these people have incorporated this this sacrament in the religious sense. And then you have the clinicians, on the other hand, those people have been able to generate like reliable mystical experience in the lab, essentially. Yeah. And and I think they're both approaching this problem of consciousness and the grail from different angles. Got it. Yeah. I mean it's interesting that, you know, that if there is like one actual holy grail or is it was it just like a bet almost a metaphor for like all mm. the things that are happening or all the the methods that are happening, the peyotes and the the rituals throughout other cultures, right? Because like if you think about it also during the the written times of of the bible and of christ and you know i guess we're focusing mainly on that but there's like on the other side of the world there's all these other native traditions happening or native rituals happening and their own way of connecting with divine intelligence or source or god or whatever you want to call it so it's like how you know was there any correlation that you found even timeline wise between say like even the Maya, say the Mayans or in India compared to like the, the Christian space that's most written about? Yeah. I mean, it, it's the, the use of, of ritual intoxicants is, I wouldn't even say ancient, it's archaic. Right. You know, it, it could go back, you know, in my book, I start 12, 13,000 years ago, looking at some of the earliest fermented beer just because I, you know, I, I focus on beer and wine a lot. And you love beer. And I love beer. So it's, <laughs> it's my own, it's my, my own bias. <laughs> and so there's a lot, hey, beer is really old. It's a fascinating beverage in addition to yeah. being nutritious and delicious. So, it, you know, but this goes back tens of thousands of years. It could, it could precede our species. We do know about animal intoxication. We do know there, there's, you know, literature that talks about uh, reindeer in Siberia, for example, feasting on the Amanita mm-hmm. mushroom. We have evidence for everything from rabbits to wild boars feasting on, on, on other species. I mean, so we know what happens in the animal kingdom. And we know that other primates avail themselves of medicinal plants. I, I, I cite one study in my book about Neanderthals and their medicinal use going back 50,000 years. I mean, so not like psychedelics per se, but you know, they had a, a knowledge of the natural landscape. They, they were ecologists. Mm-hmm. They were archaic ecologists. They had to know because there was no drugstores, obviously. So, I mean, I think, I think it's a really, really old story. And it survives in the Americas in a way that it didn't survive in Europe. And mm-hmm. so that's where some of the conspiracy comes in. I mean, why? We had pharmacology. We know we had pharmacology. Right. We know we had sacred plants. We have writers like Dioscorides and Galen these pharmacologists, these drug experts who write a lot about it, much of which hasn't been translated into English. And we know there's this folk medicine and witches and alchemy that manages to keep some of this alive, but it all dies out pretty much by the Inquisition or after the Inquisition, Um, whereas it doesn't die out in the Americas, even though there were attempts to get rid of the drugs by the missionaries and others. And so you have to ask, why, why is that? How did all this knowledge go missing in Europe? And yet, 
you know, we can look to ayahuasca and peyote as these unbroken traditions yeah. that go back centuries, if not much longer. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I I feel like the plant medicine stuff's kind of just even starting to make a resurgence now, right? In the last couple of years, that's you know, true. Especially with like the the new research that's happening, because you know when they killed it off in the Nixon era, you know, making everything illegal, and now I think the research is coming back, so it seems like they're more prominent on the radar than they were before. But you said there was a the book in the book it said you talked about the scandal of the church hiding all this stuff. Mm-hmm. And that mm-hmm. it was, um, it it was a a mission to to put the to bury it, so it wasn't the story that was being told. I mean, I'm looking. I'm always looking for data. I mean, so I went in. The, I couldn't find any organic data. I mean, it's it's hard to prove motive, right? As any as any prosecutor knows. Um, this, is, this is this is this is my lawyer hat. So I mean, it's really hard, and and maybe 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 irrelevant. But you know, I went into the the Vatican archives into the Inquisition files and found, you know, like an example of a witch, Lucrezia, who was targeted and, and her pharmacopoeia suppressed because she was a woman who knew her way around magic herbs and incense and lizard ointments, you know? And it's, it's all there captured in this really difficult Italian from the 16th century. But, you know, I, I just, I use that kind of as just um, a lens to to analyze the church's relationship with drugs in general. And, and I do cite what I think is really compelling evidence from the New World, like Hernando Ruiz de Alarcón. He writes this long treatise about the heathen superstitions, and he writes openly about burning their stash and getting rid of these drugs. And it was a real <laughs> kind of like, you know, war on drug effort to get rid of this stuff in the 17th, 18th centuries and, and beyond into the modern day war on drugs. And, and the, the, the church was involved. I mean, to the point where with the Native Americans, for example, I even, I even cite a letter from 1890 where like the, the office, the Bureau of Indian Affairs is saying that peyote, for example, on these reservations in North America is interfering quite seriously with the work of the missionaries. And so, there, mm-hmm. you know, there's this idea that, that there's a wrong Eucharist and a right Eucharist. And, you know, I, th- I think some of the first prohibition on drug use was directed at Native Americans and very much directed at their sacramental use of peyote. Mm, interesting. Yeah, I'm curious to see what that medicine, where that medicine takes one. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're about to find out. <laughs> I'm about to find out. <laughs> Coming up in a few days here. <laughs> we, need, we need reporting from the field, Nick. We'll report back and, you know we'll see where it goes but uh now let's the kukion talk to me about the kukion that was more of a beer mixture right yeah so i mean i go back twelve thousand years and we we find like traces of prehistoric beer at gobekli tepe this this monumental architecture site in southern turkey but i do that for a reason and because you know if if beer is associated with whatever kind of sacred rites were happening there. And the German Archaeological Institute talks about some kind of wacky interaction of the living with the dead or communication with the ancestors. If that was there 12,000 years ago, maybe in the faintest way possible, it has some kind of influence on the mystery religions that made their way to ancient Greece. Because you have this kukion, another beer-type potion. You have the report of ghosts or, you know, funky things happening inside Demeter's sanctuary. You have the rebirth, the resurrection of a goddess back Mm -hmm. into the upper world from the underworld. 
And so, I mean, lots of, you know, interesting parallels and especially the, the grain, you know, Demeter is the mother of the grain and she's, she's the mother of Persephone. And why are the Greeks worshiping these goddesses and drinking beer when we know that they were perfectly capable of making wine at the hmm. time? And yet this religion up until Plato is still drinking beer. So why is that? And, and I think it's a conscious throwback into deep, deep prehistory is, is, is what I think. Gotcha. Gotcha. So is there, is there a, a general overarching word for a potion that, or is kukion even one of those words where you'd be like, Oh, I'm going to make, like if I want to make my own kukion or <laughs> something of that sort. <laughs> I think we should bring that back, Nick. Yes. You, you, I, I want to bring it. Welcome. You've inspired me to bring it back after reading the book. I'm like, Hmm, I think I need, I need a word that can transcend and, and describe a magic potion that takes you to the, the highest places. You, you better bring that back. And to avoid the shit that I get over it, you, you can pronounce it better than me and say Kikion as well, which is oh, Kikion. the modern pronoun. I say Kukion for some reason, but it's, it means like mixed potion. It's a cop. It means cocktail. I think, uh, you know, an accurate translation would probably be cocktail. Okay. Well, that, that works, right? I mean, cocktails have all kinds of different things in them. There we go. And they're all, they're all different. So I could make my own kukion or kikion. I mean... I kind of like kukion. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> There's at least two of us. There's two yeah. of us. I'm with you. I'm with you. All right. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. I'd like to touch a little bit on on your, you know, if you're open to it, your um, near-death experience when you were a kid and kind of what that showed you through this whole process. Yeah, it was it was kind of strange. I mean, I've I often I still talk about it as kind of like a, a dream experience more more than anything. Mm -hmm. I was hit in the head by by a golf club from my <laughs> older brother on on accident, nothing malicious, and I, I lost a lot of blood. I was rushed to the hospital, and I opted for the root beer flavored anesthesia. And as I'm going under, I mean, I remember just kind of entering even before the anesthesia. I remember kind of entering into a twilight. Phase. And maybe maybe it was my body going into shock. Maybe it was the fact that I was five years old and didn't know what the hell was going on, but I'd lost a lot of blood. And then I don't remember anything from the operating room. I kind of dissociate. And then I'm waking up kind of foggy and groggy. And I just, I had this dream imagery of, you know, talking to older beings, wiser beings, older and wiser than me, which mm -hmm. everyone is when you're five. And then going home. <laughs> and watching the Goonies and trying to process like what, what all this was, was about and, and kind of very much, I guess, traumatized by it because the, the, the memories are like super vivid, but it, it's very strange. Like throughout the experience, I felt no pain. And, and maybe, again, maybe that was, that, that was the shock kicking in. I right. actually remember telling my mother in the car, in the car on the way to the hospital, I remember asking her why she was crying. Cause I couldn't, I couldn't understand what was going on. <laughs> And I felt fine. And it was that weird sense of peace and serenity. Um, <laughs> I guess I was dying. There's no other way to, to describe it. I, I was dying. Yeah. But for some reason was perfectly at peace and had a very vivid dream or a vivid vision of the afterlife or some liminal realm and didn't know what the hell to do with that for many, many years until I was a teenager and then you know started doing different contemplative exercises with the Jesuits and started meditating and putting these pieces together and reading trip reports and came to 
you know, an understanding of what mystical literature is and its connection to near-death literature. And honestly, it was from the time I was a teenager when I started to think about this whole concept of dying before dying. And then mm. realized that in some initiation rites, there actually is a breaking open the head. In fact, a friend of mine, Daniel Pinchbeck, wrote a book, Breaking Open the Head, about tribal initiation rites in which the skull is opened exactly like it happened to me and the blood's let out. I mean, it's not always, that's, a, that's the point. It's not always fun. You know, the initiation isn't always a fun, a fun, exciting <laughs> thing. Yeah, that, that one really doesn't sound that fun. <laughs> <laughs> cracking your skull open <laughs> that blew my mind when, when i read his book because i'd never heard of that i was i was 27 when, oh, I, wow. when i found that out and thought, oh oh man it looks like by 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 some other circuitous means i went through this this crazy initiation at the age of five yeah which cultures was that that he talked about uh, let me look it up i don't think it's the buiti because uh, he does write a lot about about iboga but i, I can find it for you I heard Iboga is a very strong, very strong one. Do you have any any familiarity? I have never done it, but I went to a place called Rhythmia a couple of years ago down in Costa Rica, and that was where I did ayahuasca for the first time. And the founder actually has a crazy story. I mean, he was like this rich, rich asshole, essentially. And he was just like, in a certain, t it got to this point, he just want, like didn't want to live anymore. And he ended up going down to Costa Rica and doing Iboga, and it just completely changed his life. It like took him, healed all of his traumas and took him to a whole new space. But it was, it's very like intense, way more intense than ayahuasca from what I heard. Wow. And hopefully not as intense as peyote. <laughs> yeah. I don't, I think it's one of the most intense ones. I, I hope I'm hoping that peyote isn't, uh, isn't as intense. <laughs> Do you get nervous before these things, Nick? I probably I, I probably will like once the once I'm in the environment and I'm like there because <laughs> you never know what's going to happen in, in these journeys. Yeah. And I think is the more you can surrender into them, you know, the more you can get through things. I mean, you know, resistance is everything. Right. So like if you're resisting what the meta where the medicine is taking you, you're going to have a much mm. harsher journey than if you just like surrender into it. But what what does that mean? Like for someone like me who's never been under the influence, like like what what, what does it mean to to resist with what's happening? You just are are you running from scary things? Are you trying to block it? Are you trying to wake up? I think part of it is, let's say, on a mushrooms, for instance, it's like you can kind of resist and can try to stay in this reality. Yeah, where the mushrooms want to take you into another reality. You know that that other transition, right? And you can maybe not necessarily go as deep or you can have a harder journey, especially now in ayahuasca when you're resisting where the medicine wants to take you because it's going to make you, a lot of times from what I've heard with people with deeper traumas as kids that were, you know, sexually abused and things like that, it'll take you straight to that moment and, it'll, mm. and make you relive that moment but to bring you through and heal you, right? And to heal that trauma. But you got to be able to, it's, it's a scary place to go, right? Because trauma is a space of fear. It's a, it, you're reacting from a fear of something happening. So the thing is, is if you, you follow it and you let yourself go into it, it's going to take you through it versus when you resist it and you're, and you're resisting that space, you're going to have a hell of a time. You're going to probably 
purge a little bit more than, <laughs> than, than anything, you know, but purging is also, I don't know if you've heard about purging when you're on ayahuasca, but the throwing up and, and that, and when you're on the medicine, it doesn't really feel like the same. I, I mean, I hate throwing up, but like on the medicine, it's different because you're not, you're in this almost hallucinogenic state and you're actually removing the whole idea is removing the trauma from your body. Like you don't want that energy stuck in your body. You're like, you want to remove it. And that's what it's, that's what the medicine is doing. So if you're resisting throwing up and purging, you're keeping that trauma inside. And so I think if you can go into it and like, just follow the flow of it, then becomes more healing in that sense. Just puke your guts out, man. Puke your guts out. Get it out. That's it. Get it out. It's like if you're sick, you want to get it out, right? Like it's not very fun while you're doing and that's it. That's a great but... feeling. Usually, I mean, I know that feeling. Then that's a that's a, a relief, a huge relief. Yeah, because you feel so much better afterwards. Hmm. Hmm. So that's the idea. Good advice, man. I'll keep that in mind. <laughs> <laughs> you know, when you do one of the medicines at some point, you know, <laughs> I mean, they can be very beautiful too. I mean, I've, I've had some of the most epically beautiful experiences on mushrooms and, mm. you know, I totally get that when you die before you die, you, you never die because it is, it's like, it's like if that anything, if death is anything like that, it's amazing. Amazing. This is what the, the this is what the volunteers say in in the Hopkins and NYU trials that it's kind of like a foreshadowing of death. And and I think more not just on one occasion. I think that these reports have come back somewhat consistently. They they talk about timelessness in the moment. And it's kind of like a like a for a foretaste yeah. of what happens when the physical body wastes away, which might be why it might be why some of these volunteers find such relief for like their end of life anxiety specifically. I'm thinking about the cancer study, for example. Yeah. Once you realize that there might be something beyond this body, right? Yeah. Whether that's true or not, whether that's true or not, but the sensation that there is something to consciousness that survives a body that is dying and failing you and that there might be something that survives that fatality, that can be very reassuring to somebody at the end of life, right? Whether it's true or not, it's it's psychologically empowering or or at least, you know, gives you an opportunity to view the death and dying process. Yeah. A bit differently, right? Mhm. Yeah, I mean it, it shifts your perspective on death and relieves some of the fear around it. Mm. Which I think is hugely shifting and hugely important in the process. So do you not I mean is it fair can I ask you like do you do you think about do you fear death? Do you, is it, or do you see death differently? Do you see it differently now than you did, I don't know, a few years ago? Yeah, definitely see it differently. I definitely wow. feel more like at ease with it, knowing that like, wow. you know, if it's anything like I've experienced, then <laughs> it's even more beautiful than being here. <laughs> uh, but we'll never know, right? Yeah. Um, but at least like, the experience of being in that has been huge. Like the experience of experiencing a a death of, so to speak, and being in that beautiful state is, you know, I mean, it's been amazing, but that's part of the surrender is getting there too. Wow. Getting into, into that space. Wow. Cause if you're holding on to this reality so much that you don't want to let go, you won't experience it. 
And how, how do you, I mean, how do you typically prepare? For, are you preparing now, for example? I, I heard that you were abstaining from caffeine for some reason. <laughs> yeah, so they, the, the center has a, that, a specific dieta or dieta that uh, is pretty common when you're going to do medicine is to kind of stay really clean. So taking out stimulants, sugar, meat, all these different things for at least two weeks, one week, one to two weeks prior. So I cut caffeine on Saturday, which I've done before. I did it for 10 days over the holidays when I was with my family. And, uh, I mean, it's, it's definitely interesting to like move through without stimulants. It's like, it's a, it's a little bit of a a struggle and a detox. That's for sure. But supposedly it, you know, the cleaner you can get your body when you go into the medicine, that's also part of the resistance, right? If you, if you're like hopped up on sugars and caffeines and, all this toxic stuff in your body, the, the medicine's going to probably like, it's going to want to get it out of you. Well, see, but this is, it, it taps into, you know, the ritual purification that you think about. When you think about ancient religion, there's always, you know, washings and ritual purifications. And at Eleusis, for example, there was a long period of preparation before the consumption of that magic potion, the kukion, mm-hmm. and before the witnessing of that beatific vision, there was we don't know exactly how long. It could be at least 18 months. It could have been longer. It could have been shorter. But there was a long preparation for that, in addition to a pilgrimage from Athens to Eleusis, 13 miles. Yeah. And you, and you showed up exhausted, maybe not in the best shape for a hallucinogen, but you show up <laughs> exhausted and hungry and thirsty, and you take this cookie on. Maybe it wasn't a heroic dose. I've been, I've been uh, speculating recently. I talked to, to Dennis McKenna, Terrence's brother, about this. Maybe, maybe it was some kind of lower dose ergotized beer, if that in fact was the, was the case, like a beer spiked with the same ergot that produces LSD and all these other alkaloids. Maybe it was just like a lower dose that kind of took advantage of the weakened state you were already in, in this highly ceremonial ritual. I mean, the, the, this high pageantry that you knew would only happen once in your life. And that Carl Rock says was like, the culminating experience for a mm. lifetime. Maybe all of that together, I mean, kind of like what you're doing now, right? In different yeah. form. Maybe maybe all the anticipation, maybe there was a diet, maybe all that together kind of prepares you for liftoff. Yeah, yeah. I think there is a big piece of that, you know, and even just doing mushrooms in a, you know, setting, like I'll just do them here in my house and, you know, I'll, I'll not eat the day before or I'll eat the day before, but I won't eat the morning of, because it's it, it kicks in harder if you're on an empty stomach. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's also just even like one little piece of it. And I'm sure like the, the cleaner your system is, the, the further you can go. Mm. But I think a lot of these things, you know, teach you, they really teach you how to access it on your own because you don't necessarily need all these things to access the divine, but they show you the way. That's interesting. But I, but I think that that's the point, isn't it? I mean, and this is the great debate right? And it's the false choice between psychedelics and meditation or other contemplative exercises. And it's the false debate, I think, between like psychedelic assisted mystical experience or genuine mystical, I mean, whatever that means, natural mm-hmm. mystical experience, like like we're all born psychics or something. <laughs> but it's, it, I, yeah, that's an interesting perspective for me, man, that it's just, it, it opens the door. What Thomas Merton would say that there are you start to recognize the gates of heaven are everywhere. Yeah. Do, do you really think that, that that's the case, that, that it shows you a door? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I they definitely like 
show you the door for sure. And I think that's what's beautiful about them is they can get you into that space. And then for me, like DMT was the first thing I ever did. And I was on a blast off to the outer reaches of the universe, which was beautiful. And then a few months, couple months later, I discovered breath work and I was able to tap into very similar spaces with breath work. And that was kind of the bridge between like the integration bridge for me was doing breath work. So you know, I think they do. And even now with mushrooms, it's like I can do less and less and tap in wow. deeper because I've gone, you know, this far. I've gone through the ceiling and now I'm coming, you know, it's like easier to like tap in on lower doses. Same with meditation. I meditate every day and it's like, you know, you can get into deep spaces through a lot of different things. But I think that the psychedelics really help kind of show you the way, show you the path in a faster way, in a faster sense. Well, you've already died. How many times do you need to die, Nick? I mean, yeah, you've, uh, you know, you've been there. You've been there. <laughs> uh, you know, I, you know, I don't know. I, I don't die every time. It's just like, you know, there's, there's a difference between like super ego death. And then there's like, kind of like resting into the space of, of the, the medicine as well. Right. Right. And I, and I think that this could be, I, th- I mean, I think this is the real value of that kind of initiation. I mean, like all initiations, sometimes it is a mind-blowing, heroic dose, you know, ego-dissolving, completely effed up journey. <laughs> um, and at, at, at other times, it's just, I mean, you can, it's, it's interesting for me to hear that through other contemplative exercises, you can kind of, you know, refine your way back there as if it's like, it's like Google Maps, you know, mm-hmm. like are psychedelics the Google Maps of the kingdom of heaven? Oh. Ram Das or his teacher was saying that like, and, you know, they were all experimenting with LSD, et cetera. And I remember his teacher says something like, so LSD can take you into the room with Christ, but it can't keep you there. And, and my response is, mm-hmm. okay, maybe, you know, spiritual exercises and ways of grounding that experience are very, very useful things to develop, right? Maybe in the wake of one of these experiences. But what good is that if you don't know where Christ's house is in the first place? I mean, and so maybe you need a bit of Google Maps to find that front door and always find your way back there. Maybe that's the beginning of a genuine spiritual journey. Some people do need that proof, right? Before they they, they launch on. Yeah, no, that's such a great analogy uh, because it is. It's just, it, it, once you, once you kind of know the way, you know, once Google Maps shows you the way, you're kind of like, oh yeah, I, I remember this. I can get there. You know, it might be a little bit more work remembering, but I do think, you know, there's different experiences that take you to different places and which is why I still continued to do plant medicine. But it was interesting. The journey that I had on New Year's Day was kind of like this system upgrade, so to speak. But it also just showed me it was like all these plant medicine journeys that you've done up until now has really just been about clearing the, your channel and clearing your container because it's like our negative thought processes and our traumas that keep us from accessing that divine, hmm. accessing divine intelligence, source, God, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. And that's what keeps us from remembering the map, so to speak. So I think if you can create daily practices that, you know, don't necessarily have aren't plant medicine, but can also, you can still access it, like you were saying, just like on a more practical level. So the reason I find this fascinating is because we've been wrestling with these questions for thousands of years, which is to say, like, what role do these things or these rituals generally, what what role do they have in, in human society? And so... You know, like the Egyptian pharaohs, for example, they, they, they took this technology 
and very much kept it to themselves. The Near Eastern royalty and aristocrats did somewhat similar things. The high priests come along and do the same thing. Eleusis, as accessible as it was, open to women and slaves, etc., was still controlled by the Greek state and these two hereditary families. And then Dionysus is coming in and he's disagreeing with everybody who came before and really wants to democratize this kind of experience, saying anybody can handle this as much as they want all the time. Mm -hmm. And then the Roman Senate cracks down on them. They kill 6,000 followers of Dionysus. The mysteries are in jeopardy. Here comes Jesus. And not only is he democratizing this thing, right? It's, it's, again, it's very much not supported by the state. It's, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a countercultural movement, mm-hmm. just like Dionysus. But instead of Dionysus, you know, which, you know, whose churches were largely outdoor and celebrated in the forests and the mountains and these crazy orgies across, across Italy, what Jesus takes this sacrament and this mystery meal, what in the Orthodox church is called the mystical supper. And the Russians call it the secret supper, right? Mm-hmm. Getting back to this grail concept. And, and he has a whole different take on it. And, and I think it shows that we're trying to come to grips with what this means, how often to take it. Is this necessary for spiritual life? Is this some kind of gratuitous grace? But, you know, Christ domesticates, if you read the Gospels, I mean, Christ is domesticating this meal, this mystery mm-hmm. meal, something that had never been done before. And that if you had done it with Eleusis, you would subject yourself to the death penalty or to... Wow. Uh, being ostracized at, at the ver- at the very least, it was illegal yeah. to celebrate the mysteries indoors. That's exactly the invitation mm. that Jesus is doing. So he's Amazon priming the sacrament direct to the front door, and that's where Christianity thrives for three hundred years: is dining rooms, right? Mm. And then you know, at some point, not in every church, we lose the sacrament. If there was a psychedelic sacrament. It's not for everybody. And so yeah. I, mean, I, I mentioned all that only to say throughout history, it seems to me we've never really come to you know, hard and fast rules on, on how this technology ought to be employed. Like who should have access to it? When should you have access to it? What kind of container does it fit in? Do you build a religious life around it? Does this have nothing to do with religion? I mean, so and it's, it's all very relevant stuff. Yeah. So when, when you know, the first 300 years when people are going to houses and things like that to experience it, but was it called, I mean, because Christianity as I know it today, as we know it today, is on this major kind of crux of a certain belief, right? If you believe this, you go to heaven. If you don't, you go to hell. So back mm. in those days when, you know, I guess this would still be post post Christ, but like even with, when Christ was hanging out and having with his homies and, you know, were they, what was it called then, you know? <laughs> I mean, come on. Christ and his homies. They're like all just hanging out doing mushrooms. Like, hey, we should just write a book, yo. <laughs> <laughs> That's another book out, Christ and His Homies. <laughs> Christ and His it. Homies, I'm telling you. <laughs> <laughs> it was what? We don't know. I mean, so before, again, it's those few hundred years are like the most fascinating thing because I think that's where you get a sense of what this religion was supposed to become, or at least how the earliest Christians thought of Jesus. And so, mm-hmm. like, we don't have, you know, about like all the creeds, like in the, in the Catholic and Orthodox churches and the Protestant, like there are no creeds. There's no... There's no councils mm-hmm. deciding on doctrine, deciding on which books go in, which books go out. None, none of this really 
coalesces until the fourth and fifth centuries. Right. And right. again, th these are councils convened by emperors or presided over by by emperors. Right. And there's 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 an agenda there, obviously. But before that, you had I mean, there were Gnostic churches, there were Gnostic gospels that were not rediscovered until 1945 wow. at Nag Hammadi, and now we know there were alternative gospels that didn't make it into the Bible, like the Gospel of Thomas, for example. Right. And when you read the Gospel of Thomas, you have a very different view of Jesus. It's not a Jesus who came to be the one and only Son of God, and if you believe in him, you are saved. It's a Jesus who came to teach, and it's a Jesus mm. who came to, to offer a chance at divinity. I mean, th that's how I read the Gospel of John, which did make it inside the Gospels. Right. But I mean, the Gospel of Thomas is, is, even, is even more explicit. Can I read you a quick line from, from Thomas? Yeah, yeah, of course. Maybe that'll kind of um, bring it together here. So it's, it's a series of, of sayings. And again, we didn't really have this until the mid 20th century. And there have been a few translations. The most famous was probably in the 1970s. And Elaine Pagels writes a lot about this and does a great translation. But in saying 108, and you won't find this you know, in the New Testament, but Jesus says, whoever drinks from my mouth will become like me. I myself shall become that person and the hidden things will be revealed to him. In other words, that you are Christ. You, you are Jesus just as much as I am. And, and don't put me on a pedestal. Become like me. And again, you, you, you can find mystical Christianity that interacts with this idea throughout the ages. Yeah. Um, and some of it is very dangerous. Some of it's suppressed. But I mean, right there at the beginning of Christianity, you have Thomas, the doubter, the bad one, writing another gospel <laughs> where where Christ is inviting everybody to become divine. Yeah, absolutely. That's my belief. <laughs> that's your Jesus. That's my, that's, my, that's my Jesus right there. You got Magic Jesus and Thomas Jesus. You, you found your Jesus. I like it. I like it. Now, now wasn't Mary Magdalene, she didn't Mary Magdalene write a whole book as well that got ousted? You know what's you know what's wild about that is that that's even old. I mean, so that was rediscovered in 1896, if I'm not mistaken, in Achmim, also in Egypt. I mean, just because I mean, Egypt is a fascinating place for lots of reasons. Yeah. And the preserving sands, they 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 keep this stuff. And what Egypt has preserved for us are very different versions of Christianity, including a gospel from Mary Magdalene, where she's presented just like in John's gospel as like the chief visionary. You know, and she's presented as teaching Peter and the other apostles how to be a good visionary and what it means and kind of leading these like, like, the, like the Tibetan Book of the Dead. She kind of teaches them about the afterlife space and navigating these things and how these visions that she can experience with Jesus are natural and are available to all of us. Yeah. But she has to teach the men how to do this. It's really, it's mm. really bizarre. I mean, I love it. I mean, I think there is something with the divine feminine and women and there is like, there is, I think I'm seeing this rise as well of, of women leaders in consciousness, which is beautiful. Hmm. Hmm. So that's why I'm super fascinated with the Mary Magdalene story. I'll, I'll look into, we'll look into more of that, but uh, we probably got to cut it, jump here. I know you got things to do for the rest of the day. So um, yeah, where can people find you on online they, they can find me they can find me nick uh, if you go to uh, the immortality key.com you can see my my website there and I, I try and be active on twitter and instagram it's nowhere near as entertaining as the instagram of nick onkin but 
I try and post every <laughs> once in a while. We should we should do more. We should do more music, Nick. Yeah, that was cool. Yeah, yeah. We'll 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 have to do another one of those. I'll lay those. On. I'm just I'm just playing around with DJing. It's kind of you know I'm just messing around with it. It's kind of fun. You're pretty good, man. Well, thank you. Uh, well, hey, it was a pleasure having you on. Thank you so much for your time and and for sharing all of your vast knowledge. And I look forward to future adventures. I'll see you on the other side of the peyote. <laughs> Thank you guys so much for tuning into today's episode of the Onkin Radio Podcast. I am your host, Nick Onkin, and I hope you enjoyed today's episode. And if you do, I'd love it if you could help us out by leaving us a good review over on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, wherever you listen to your podcast at. If you want to check out the show notes, you can go over to onkin.co slash immortality key. And with that, you know what time it is. It's time to go out and create your life by creating every small moment. And we'll see you next time.